0: Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. I'll begin with an aside about a cat. I mentioned Rescue Cat 27705 on this recording, who is a foster kitty with black and white tuxedo coloration and an incredibly sweet disposition that was found malnourished and abandoned on a wooden pallet. Since it's been with me, it's gained 50% of its body weight in under two weeks. It's still underweight and almost 11 pounds. This cat plays fetch, is easy to pick up, is such a sweetheart, meows at me while I'm recording these introductions infuriatingly. And now to the introduction. My father, like most humans, is many things. He grew up Roman Catholic, but commit apostasy and after traveling, and for those of you who don't know, apostasy is when you essentially renounce your faith and the church at the very least, um, and sort of move on spiritually on your own, either to become an atheist or to become spiritual like my father did. So after traveling and soul searching, he decided to follow a spiritual path at the Sri Aurobindo ashram in Puducherry, which is in the south of India. Its colonial name is Pondicherry. If you've read The Life of Pi, the ashram's pool, after which um, Paseen Molitor Patel is named, is actually um, a pool my father's gone swimming in, because that's the specific ashram I'll be talking about today. The ashram has been accused of being cultish before, and I'm not going to take a stance on that. But uh, it's led by two leaders, one Aurobindo Ghos and another Mira Alfasa. Aurobindo Ghos is known as Sri Aurobindo, and I actually derive my middle name, Aravind, from that name. My sister derives Oro, part of her first name, and I believe the town of Oroville also derives part of its name from his name. He was, quote, arrested in the aftermath of a number of bomb outrages linked to his organization, but in a highly public trial where he faced charges of treason, dot, 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 could only be convicted and imprisoned for writing articles against British rule in India, end quote. During his stay in jail, he had mystical and spiritual experiences, supposedly, after which he moved to Pondicherry, um, leaving politics for spiritual work. The other is Mira Alfasa. In her young adulthood, she was documented. Um, being an occultist, um, being an atheist, and eventually became a spiritual teacher. She married and divorced Henri-François Morissette, as well as Paul-Antoine Richard. Um, So she's lived a full life, to say the least, or lived a full life because she's dead now. Um, She also became revered as the mother after, I believe, Sri Aurobindo said that she represented the divine mother archetype. I've heard stories... um, from, through my father, that these two leaders actually are said to have known each other before they met and to have been in psychic connection before they were physically involved. Um, and I've also heard stories from my father about Aurobindo Gos, Sri Aurobindo, um, psychically interfering with Hitler during World War II. So... There are essentially two potential narratives here. There's the skeptics' narrative of the ashram as a cult, and there's the mystics' narrative of the ashram as a teaching temple that's guiding those willing to take the spiritual journey to a place of awareness and consciousness as framed as the next evolution of humanity. So, those are both interesting narratives to explore in their fullness. And I'll try and let the session speak for itself as much as possible and just sort of, as I said in the beginning, just sort of present this to you. Um, But there's a couple of last pieces I wanted to to gift to you before you sort of listen to the session. So there's also the township of Oroville, which sprung up as a place of spiritual communism, or if you prefer um, to quote one man who actually met Mira Alfasa, radical anarchism, which is not to say a bad thing. Anarchism is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, The idea here being that anyone could meditate and advance their awareness regardless of creed, nationality, ethnicity, religion, etc. Um, Orville, I actually thought, was a really interesting place. I didn't get to see a lot of it, but I got to see some of it. And the people there seemed really nice and interesting. And it runs on like a pseudo-communist, um, co- I should say communalist at the very least, um, ethic, which is pretty neat. Everyone works. Um, everyone gets fed. It also has this quite amazing structure, in my opinion, um, which I've been inside, called Matramandir. It's an egg-shaped structure with a gold lotus-like... Um, well, with many petals that I believe are actually plated in gold in these lotus-like arrangements on the outside. I sort of had the privilege of going into the inner chamber, the inner sanctum, and meditating, which was really cool, and I offer my experience briefly in the session. All in all, um, I'm trying not to have too strong an opinion about this one way or the other. My father is my father. I love him very dearly. Whether I apply a veneer of mystic or a veneer of cultist or something in between, he is who he is, and the narrative that people choose to ascribe to him is less important to me. Um, It would be especially upsetting if in any way it damaged my relationship with him or estranged him from me, so I'll simply offer as much as I can to you and let you make up your decision as to the frame you want to put on this very interesting portrait.
1: While you hit the subject that I'm... tend to talk about if you if someone's really sincerely interested i'll talk about it if they're not if they're just asking party questions i'm not going to talk about it Mm -hmm. and there are even lots of things i wouldn't say even in this situation Mm -hmm. like (laughs) like the old chinese saying that uh, he who knows won't say and he who says won't know
0: (laughs) that is a great saying I'd like to welcome everyone to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with David Salmon, my father, and we're talking about the Catholic Church and the Sri Aurobindo Ashram in South India. So I want to sort of bring you back, Dad, to what you were talking about um, the other day when you were talking about pyramids and you were talking about um, the sort of ideas in Catholicism around Jesus and having a relationship with Jesus and Jesus not being alive anymore.
1: Yeah. I think we, I talked about that whole feeling as a fairly young child that it just wasn't fair that you don't get a chance.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, yeah, both those things that I never thought I would ever have a chance at, I mean, building something monumental that would last a long time
0: mm.
1: or meeting a, a truly great soul, divine soul, whatever you want to call it. Mhm. never really expected that to happen. That's why I felt it was so unfair. But in the end, who knows? It happened, and
0: anything can happen, I guess. Mm-hmm. So oh, I was going to ask you about childhood memories in the Catholic Church, but you already talked about meeting a divine soul. Um, do you want to talk more about that?
1: Can do you want to go more in order and start from younger and work to
0: older? Or? Sure, we can do that if you'd like. Um, what was your relationship with with divinity or a sense of spirituality when you were younger?
1: Hmm, that's a hard one to say. I think when you're younger, you have a sort of a a very open nature, so whatever your parents and your teachers and everyone else tells you, you sort of absorb very mm-hmm. quickly. And you're not overly critical about it when you're very young. Mm-hmm. But I think I had a an innate sense of something other that I, I which I couldn't put my finger on and teachers, everybody said it was God or whatever a word which I absolutely hate now. I never use the word God if I can help it. Mm-hmm. Just because it means something different to each individual
0: mm-hmm. and so there's
1: no real communication by using it because it, there's no common understanding of what it is so I don't like to use the word. But uh, yeah, and as a I just had a feeling of something other. I don't know. It couldn't. Put, it, it wasn't mentalized. It wasn't well formulated. I was still pretty young. And uh, yeah, the priests that were around me at that time, because I was I, my parents went to church every Sunday, but I was an altar boy, so I ended up going more often. If they needed someone to come, if there was a priest visiting who wanted to say a mass,
0: mm-hmm.
1: needed an altar boy. Frank and I were both fairly close. We didn't live far away, so we got we could walk in five minutes to the church, so we got called a lot. Mm. So I met a lot of different priests, and there were some good and some not so good and some full of kindness and generosity and some very, very self-centered and not <laughs> full of anything nice. Just people. Yeah, just like people are generally, yeah, for mm. sure.
0: So why didn't you continue in your faith as a Catholic? Oh, there were a
1: lot of reasons, I guess. Um, As my mind developed in high school and the whole exposure to the hippie culture of the 60s and all that, I became more critical of the church and what the church had done in the past. I mean, there are endless examples of the church's colonialism, through European countries and Jesuits and all the other influences and the terrible destruction that they caused wherever they went seemed like that. Anyway, many, many cultures destroyed or badly damaged by them. Mm -hmm. And that bothered me a lot. And that sort of the whole idea of the church as a social structure might be good for some people, but I couldn't really stomach a lot of it. I just felt it regardless of the essence, which might've been fine and true and good, the general structure just seemed to me to be fairly corrupt in a very human sense. Mm. And that bothered me. And then I think the final straw was when I was traveling in Europe as a young man. I went to the Vatican. And I remember it was St. Joseph's Day. So there was a big, big ceremonial mass going on. And at the beginning, all the cardinals and whatever the next layer down is they were they all bishops, came out I think.
0: is it bishops and cardinals? I, I, don't don't know. Know I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Monsignors.
1: Okay. Are in there too. So I think it's monsignors and cardinals of the sort of the higher level. Mm. And they all came out in this huge choir marching down and there was a certain pomposity. It looked more like Ben Hur and Hollywood than it did like an intimate humble offering to the divine or anything that I would accept as being a genuine spirituality. It was just this pompous, awe-inspiring effort to impress people. And I realized that that's a lot of the function of the church was to impress the poor and the the simple folks and make them think that, you know, these men must all be incredibly wonderful. And I don't think any of them probably were. I remember watching it and just remember tears coming out of my eyes. I just thought, what was I 19 at the time, maybe 18, 19 at the time. And I just thought, this is, this just is wrong. This just isn't me. I just can't be part of this. I got up, turned my back on it. There was a small light at the end where the door was open. This is in St. Paul's mm. in the great Basilica of St. Paul. And, uh, I walked out and as I came out, the sunlight and the great, piazza in front of me and i just walked through it and i thought that's it i'm never going back there Mm. and that was the end that was just the final sort of very dramatic cut for me and i never went back to it
0: Mm. so what did you find that spirituality and specifically indian spirituality offered you and correct me if i'm wrong it is indian spirituality that drew you in specifically right
1: oh Indian, but then it goes way beyond that. It becomes a a thing of humanity and not just any specific culture. Right. I think India has provided a certain... uh, What's the word I want? A type of venue or a type of place where it can, can at least be appreciated and not crushed. Most places it's been crushed, but in India for all there's a huge worldly lust for everything i mean it's just a a mad rush of so many people trying to get food and big tvs and whatever you know they're just they've just soaked up materialism like every other culture on earth they're no different Mm. but they're different in one sense in that they still appreciate people who want to see something other than higher than that so a sadhu who's just wandering the streets and trying to find God in his own way is still respected, even by the, the rich and uh, people who are, very very materialistic. They still would stop, and be respectful, might even offer some alms to a, to a holy man. That's not. Whereas in North America, a man like that would just be, shuffled off as an idiot and would never be respected. So that's different, and that, impressed me when I was there, in India and Indian
0: still does. And, uh, just sort of a respect for that quest to sort of find a sense of purpose.
1: Yeah. Well, the respect for any human being who, who tried, Mm. whereas here to be mocked for the most part, Mm -hmm. but there it's at least respected, even though the rest of the culture may not be there and you know, the great bulk of the, of the people just don't quite get it, which is understandable. It's an esoteric thing and people don't get it but uh those who are trying to get it are respected by the rest hmm. for the most part they're not mocked or people will give them a chance let them let them try it's worth trying I, I i can do it but let them try is sort of the attitude that many people have but uh yeah there's what got me about it i guess was had to do with meeting the mother because that was the, the moment at which everything changed. Do you want me to talk yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, go for
0: it. Yeah, might as well speak about it.
1: Well, I, I was traveling all over the, just a wandering hippie, and I'd wandered all over the Middle East and met wonderful people everywhere. Iran, great people, and Afghanistan, some really cool, nice individuals. And and some very difficult and problematic people too, just about everywhere you go. And the same was true in India, but when I got us well down into the south to Madra, I bumped into an American similar to myself. He says, Hey, have you been to Pondicherry? And I said, Well, no, I've heard about it. I see I've seen it on the map and I heard that it's French. He says, Oh yeah, go and see it. French is different. He said, It's different. Architectures a lot of the sort of the old classical French architecture. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. It's like a different atmosphere. Try it out at least once. You should see something other than the British India. Mm. So I said, okay, I'll give it a try. And I, I did when I went up through Tanjore and the great temple there. Uh, I caught a bus, went up to Pondi, got down off the bus. And in those days, Pondi was really quiet town, like, not, not <laughs> like the bustling big city feel that it has now not that it's that big but it's still it's pretty big
0: it has a community of expats that live there as well as of course locals
1: yeah of course there's a large community of expats there now because of orville mostly mm. but in those days orville had barely begun just mm-hmm. barely begun uh but i got down off the bus and rickshaw wallace there were several of them trying to get people there and as soon as this white guy came yeah. out they are hollering, ashram, ashram, ashram. So the closest one, I said, sure, I'll go. No idea what he was talking about. Just knew that ashrams are sometimes interesting and sometimes boring. Mm-hmm. But I thought, I'll, I'll check it out. Why not have an open mind? I've got nothing else that I know about Pondi, so I'll go there. Mm-hmm. So I hopped in and haggled with him and agreed a Price, and he took me to the ashram. That's a Sura Aurobindo ashram. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, it was very quiet compared to now, one guy at the front gate just says, I'll oh, just throw your pack at the side there. I'll keep an eye on it and go on in. Hmm. And sort of told me what was what I could see, the samadhi where Sirabinda's body was and that sort of thing. Hmm. So I went in and sat around for a while. I wouldn't say I formally meditated, but I just quiet. Something was there. Something was different. And so I, there's a, there was a book section where you could buy books and things. So I picked up a couple of small books of Serban was writing, just to get an idea, see what it was about. And went back out, and the guy said, I asked him where can I stay? Is are there good hotels? He says we have guest houses. He said if you just walk all the way down the beach, or if you want, take an, uh, get a rickshaw wala and just get him to take you down to Park. So I went down to Park of Charbon, a guest house in those days, and it was very inexpensive. And I decided to eat at the ashram dining room, which was easy in those days as well. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And before I knew it, after about three or four days, my head was just full of these ideas that were, they were just, what's the word I want? They sort of penetrated. I'd read lots of other Indian spiritual sort of books and reading, but nothing like this. This just, for some reason, just kept, dinging a little bell inside me you know just something that said wow okay I'll, I, can, I can't deny that you know and it all just seemed so true and so real and after a few weeks I was trying to get trying to get in touch with people that could teach me more and I was led or told to go to see a a very fine man who was uh had been the head of the department of oriental studies in Cambridge, which is a pretty high sort of place to get to in the academic world. Sure. And he'd gone back to the ashram after that and stayed there. And so I was getting a very high academic to help me understand some of the stuff. So I was pretty lucky. I don't think I understood at the time how lucky I was to be able to, and he was so generous. He says, come on, come every Monday, come at this time, have a cup of tea with me and we'll discuss this stuff and we decide which book we should start with and we'll go through all the spiritual stuff and you ask questions I'll try and explain it to you and after a few weeks of doing that he asked me one day have you seen the mother and I sort of paused and said you mean physically go and see the mother he said "Oh yes of course I said you're kidding I mean she must be really a special being not the ordinary type of person does she have time to see the young, absolute uh, greenhorn like I said, I knew nothing. I was green. I didn't know anything about anything. I was just starting to learn and appreciate something was special here. He says, don't worry about that. Just just if you want to go, write a little note asking for permission, and I'll take it up. He says, I go and see her every Tuesday, so give it to me, and I'll take it up to her, and I'll read it to her. And yeah, he says, you have to remember she's in her 90s, so... Uh, I just read it to her, and she'll say yes or no, or whatever. I said, okay, thank you very much. So I, the next few nights I sat down wrote just a very short little note asking for permission to have her darsha to see her. And uh, a week later, he didn't say anything. By the end of our lesson, I was sort of wondering, so I said, did did Mother say anything, can, can I go? oh yeah he says that's right yeah he said you're supposed to get a photograph taken so that you can see who you, what you look like and you have to write your life story in a, on a full scrap piece of paper he says don't do more than one page he says i have to read it to her and it'll tire if i have too much to read so he said make it keep it reasonably short okay i thought well that's going to be interesting at 21 you don't have a long life but still put it all, everything that you can think of. That's brought you to this point specifically, Mm -hmm. I think was what she was looking for. Wasn't an easy task to, to write that out. It took me a couple of nights of looking at a blank sheet of paper and the Mm -hmm. third night I sat down and it just flowed out of me and I just wrote the whole thing in about 10 minutes. So I gave all that to him, the photo and everything and waited. And a few days later where I was staying in the guest house, someone came running. and said, there's a phone call for you. I thought, who on earth knows where I'm staying? I I didn't know many people, just that academic and a few other people. I hadn't really. So I went running off and answered the phone. And it was Monsieur André who was the son of the mother and worked for UNESCO. Uh, A really nice French gentleman. And he said, uh, mother said she'll see you and she asked me to bring you up and introduce you to her. Hmm. So I said, okay, thank you very much. He says, come tomorrow at around nine. He says, we'll have to wait a little while till people clear out some of the people that are getting instructions for running the ashram. And he says, then,
0: mm-hmm. then
1: we'll go and see her. And so next day he took me up. We waited until a few people were finished and got out. He took me in, introduced me, and gave, told Mother my name. And I didn't speak. I just, I knelt down because she was old and bent in a, in a chair i didn't want her having to try and lift her head to look up at me so i knelt down to look up at her and things happened <laughs> not much i can say about it um, i found myself in front of a consciousness that went back to the stars never realized that anything could exist in this world that wasn't limited like my own conscience a consciousness had been limited i didn't realize this sort of vastness of being could exist in a human body. It was very mind-blowing, really. And uh, I, her look was, just went through me like a torchlight, like this really bright illuminated light of of viewing or, or consciousness just zing went right through me. And I couldn't take it for long. I closed my eyes. I took it for a little while, but I don't know how to explain, but I just had to close my eyes at one point. It was just too much and things happened, which are impossible to describe and probably shouldn't be put in words. And then I opened my eyes and there was this smile, <laughs> the smile of love and kindness that I just can't express, it was just unbelievable, the beauty of it, the wonder of it. and and a noise, a sound, like a groan, or that's a, a terrible word to use, but yeah, th- this just a sound that came out of love, and very wonderful. And then she reached out and she touched my forehead and she turned away and I realized it was over. And I got up and went out and I was going down all the stairs because she lives right up at the worst, in a room right at the top of the ashram. And as I was going up, this old Bengali gentleman came up past me. And he sort of looked up to be sort of, oh, someone coming down the stairs. And there was this smile on his face. And I wondered why. And then I realized there's tears running down my my face. And I guess he just knew from experience what that meant. And I remember walking out the front of the ashram five or ten minutes later and looking at the world going by rickshaws and people walking and people on their way to the market and thought, my God, don't they know what's here? Don't they realize how can they just carry on? Like life is normal. It was such a shock. What I'd seen just changed everything.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: What I'd experienced, I guess. And that was the beginning. And after that. Well, was seven years before I came back to Canada to visit my
0: family. Wow. Yeah, I guess a lot changed in that time. You ended up with a family and you were working at... No,
1: no, that's seven years I didn't.
0: That's seven years you didn't have a family. No, no, it was later than that. Oh, that's right. Because you didn't start your family until, I guess, 28? No, even older. How long? When? 30. 30 when yeah. you started. So My you ter- t-
1: my tree was born, I was just turning turn right. 30.
0: That's right. And you two are 30 years apart, exactly. Well, yeah, it would have to be, yeah. Right, because yeah. you had her when you were, yeah, 30, that makes sense. Okay.
1: And I was in orville at that point. I'd After I worked for about a year and a half in the dining room. Mm, at the ashram in Pondicherry. Yeah, with this wonderful man, Sita Ramji, who the one, the Rani tells me the story about later. Mm. Um, I wrote a little note to the mother at one point, because she... she gave these little statements out that would come out and be recorded with a date that she'd said. And she said something about the importance of Matramandir, this building at the center of Orville, Mm -hmm. not only for Orville, but for the whole world. It struck me that she didn't say anything that wasn't true. I mean, if she said it, she meant it, Mm -hmm. and it was true. And I thought about it for a while, and I thought, oh my God, if it's that critical a thing what can I do to help? And so I wrote her a little note just saying, I'm happy here working in the dining room. If you want me to stay here? I'll be fine. But if you'd like me to go to Machimandir, I'd be happy to do whatever work I can to help push it forward. And the gentleman, it was a different gentleman, took that note up for me. He came back down, and so I said, well, what did Mother say? And he just laughed at me. Well, not at me, but he just started laughing. And I said, "What? what's so funny? He said, I've never seen anything like it before. He said, she just, pointed her finger to the north towards Oroville and motioned with her hand three times and said, go, go, go. And he laughed. He says, no question about what she wants you to do. So I said, well, that's good. It's clear. It's simple. I'm on my way. And the next morning I had all my stuff, well, my backpack is about all I had anyway, on the back of my newly purchased cycle and cycled out to Oroville and, and started introduce myself to people there and said I'm here to help and pitched in and was there for but it ended up being 11 years well wow. 10 I guess out that's, there
0: that's a long time mm. so that was when you were 21 still was when you, you you said you worked for a year and a half so you'd be yeah, like 22, 22 I guess yeah then you took off to Oroville and then you stayed in Oroville for another 10 11 years
1: uh there was one year I came away a year and a half I came away and I went came back to Vancouver made some money because I had nothing left really right and uh, I traveled through Africa for I forget how many months eight or ten months that's awesome yeah all across West Africa and down through Zaire up the Zaire River and into uh, Burundi and flew to Kenya and eventually flew back to Mumbai and back
0: to India it's cool. I'm I'm curious what countries in Africa you got to see, if you... Really <laughs> if you really want can, me to
1: do this? Uh,
0: <laughs> if you can try and remember Yeah, them.
1: Senegal first. I started on the very west edge of the west coast, mm-hmm. in the Gambia. Mm-hmm. I had to go around the Guineas because there was a civil war going on in one of them.
0: Right.
1: So I went to Sierra Leone and Côte d'Ivoire, and then I traveled north, went up to what was then Volta, which is now um, Burkina Faso, Mm. up to Burkina Faso and Ouagadougou. And I had seen the name Ouagadougou on a globe when I was in about grade five. And I started singing it, Ouagadougou, Ouagadougou, because it just had that incredible rhythm to it of the sound. And I remember keeping that and thinking, one day I'm going there. (laughs) I love that name so much I'm going to visit there one day absolutely no idea that I ever really could and there I was in Ouagadougou and it was just incredible serendipitous yeah I really liked it and then I met a guy from the Peace Corps who was working in the north of Togo so we traveled together through to Togo and Mm -hmm. he showed me around his area in the north and I traveled down to to Lome in the south of uh, Togo and then into Benin and then into Nigeria, and all up through northern Nigeria and out through into uh, the north of the Cameroons, where I met my first great love. (laughs) Um, I won't go into all that, but you know that story anyway. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I'm back down to the south of the Cameroons. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And how did I go? Oh, I flew from there down to Zaire, which is now the Congo, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Zaire mm-hmm. in those days, Kinshasa.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And from Kinshasa, I took the riverboat, went right up into the interior and ended up in Bukavu and uh, Goma mm-hmm. and Bukavo, where all the trouble was with Rwanda and all that was happening oh, up geez. there. But that wasn't quite happening yet. I was right. there just ahead of all that. mm mm-hmm. Uh, In fact, I missed that first big outbreak of Ebola by two weeks. Really? I went with a bus. I went right through that same hub town where Ebola spread from that first big outbreak of Ebola. Wow. I missed it by two weeks, which was fortuitous. Yeah, that's lucky. And, uh, yeah, traveled through uh, that area with some friends in Burundi. Took another short hop over to Nairobi. Traveled up the east coast to Lamu and Malindi and Lamu and first Mombasa, Malindi, then Lamu, and then came back down and then flew to Mumbai and went back to Oroville and started working there again. So there's a break right. in the middle. Yes,
0: yeah, so that sounds like you really did get not just a bit of a of a break in terms of working, um, but also you got to travel consistently through Africa for quite a while and be exposed to different cultures and different ideas. And all that time you didn't feel, you know, like there was any culty aspect to the ashram or that?
1: No, no, I just, I want, I'd always wanted to, like I said, as a child, even I wanted to go to Ouagadougou, but I wanted to experience Africa. And one of the reasons was in the sixties growing up, there was the whole movement in the States for civil rights and Martin Luther King and all that sort of thing going on. And I watched the news every night and it was always on the news of these people being Cheated terribly the black people. They weren't even allowed to vote in many cases.
0: Mm-hmm. Or drink from the same water
1: fountains even. Oh, yeah. All the, all the terrible segregation and yeah. things that were going on. Intense racism. And there. it still hasn't finished 100% by any means, but it's better, thank God. But I kept looking at myself in the mirror as a white kid and thinking, if I were living in Atlanta, would I grow up to be a cracker and just be as bad as all those other people? Would I have those feelings? Would I become racist? And it bothered the hell out of me mm-hmm. because it just seemed so wrong. And mm-hmm. I ended up um, deciding that I would visit Africa and immerse myself in black culture throughout Africa as much as I could and see what happened, see see how I felt and how I reacted and see what happened. And I fell in love with people there all over the place. Mm-hmm. And I remember on that, on the riverboat, actually going up the Zaya river, I, w- I needed a shave. I'd get, it just got really hairy. So I went down to shave and there was just a little bit of mirror hanging left on the wall. And I sort of looked in that little bit of mirror and I saw who I was and I'd forgotten I was white. <laughs> I mean, I'd been so long with these young university students that I'd been traveling with that I just felt like I was one of them. And it hadn't struck me for a while that I wasn't exactly the same as they are. I mean,
0: Like the difference had kind of faded away for you?
1: Yeah, I had no idea. I was I didn't think of myself different in any way, shape, or form from them. And when I looked in that mirror, it was a shock. And I was so happy. Because <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to grow into that cracker, so... <laughs> It was so. good. It was a good experience. But after all that, I ended up back in India
0: and the rest is history. <laughs> what, yeah. do you, what do you say? Yeah. So, yeah. So it's clear the uh, the ashram offered you like uh, a space of spirituality where you were sort of free to explore that in a way that wasn't domineering, domineeringly controlled by like a religion like the Catholic church. And
1: No, there was very little in the way of control or rules or pretty wide open. Um, and mother had set things rolling. Like she'd shown me things that I had no idea existed. Mm -hmm. So I had to start working on trying to find that. And by reading and talking with people who had more experience than myself, it, it opened up and that made it worthwhile, which is why in the end I ended up going back there when I retired. But
0: Mm -hmm. so what's, um, what is macho
1: Ah, it's a kind of focal point for the power that is changing the earth. Could you say more about that? Yeah, well, I'm going to, because that's, (laughs) that's already sounds kind of pretentious. So the whole point of Sri Aurobinda's yoga was evolution and the spiritual evolution from not so much the forms of evolution on the physical side and he doesn't deny any of that exists he's quite happy with the something very close anyway to the darwinian theory of of physical evolution but that the most essential form of evolution is actually in the consciousness of all those creatures and that at each level from the the uh, worms you know the flat worms or whatever Sure. To the the fishes, to the first things on land. Mm
0: -hmm. There was an evolution of consciousness and awareness. Yeah,
1: each one was at a slightly higher level of awareness, right up into the apes and eventually into humans. Mm -hmm. And that that hasn't finished and is going to continue. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that it's the thing that's critical about the human position is, is we can finally consciously be part of that. Mm-hmm. we're aware enough now to know that if there's going to be a change, we can be a part of it if we make the effort. And if you, his symbol is the, similar to the Star of David, but with a square in the middle, and it's the triangle going up and the triangle coming down. So it's the aspiration of people, of humanity, towards something higher, which is that evolutionary push, and then there's the answer coming down, which is a kind of a force, I guess you could say that will draw consciousness up and help consciousness develop and become more. And um, The machmandir is essentially a focal point
0: for that downward force of and, sort of awareness of pe peop- for of people. Like awareness in people of spirituality and of a downward no, force.
1: No, the, the the downward force is a kind of grace or power or sure truth consciousness. I don't care what you call it. They call it a whole bunch of things, but sure, they're all inaccurate because they're not. They're because they're words and they're mental. But that force, which is helping uplift as well as then the response, which is aspiring and moving up. Those two things come together on the earth and people can evolve into something better. Mm. Um, but the focal point for that force, a focal point, not the only one, but a major focal point for that force is the Matramandir. It's a bit like a crystal to a radio and you get that focus of concentrated force there. So building it was to build basically a temple for a new age, for a new beginning. Um, I mean, it's, what, 52 years now or something since it started. Yeah. And at the time when we were doing it, people just said, "Us, another one of these utopian dreams. It'll never last 20 years, maybe, if you're lucky. So it's still going. I don't know. We'll see how it goes, but it's still going. But it was very... It was important after Mother said, go, 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 that I go and I try and make myself useful to this work that she, had, she and, well, Sri Aurobindo and herself had initiated, were trying trying to get moving on earth to try and give it a push and get it started. Because mm-hmm. there was so much that was pulling pulling people down on earth, of the wars and the, all the politics and everything else. But... Uh, i I knew in a way that I wasn't going to be any great yogi in a hurry. I was still very young, didn't understand much, was still caught up with all the the things that young people are looking for in life no success, work, women, marriage, whatever all those things. so I knew i wasn't but I knew I had a good, reasonable body, and I could physically do work and construction and help, so I was trying to pay her back as best I could that way. Just by working, and if I could open myself at the same time and receive some help and guidance perhaps expand my consciousness a bit, then that was all you know good and and well, but uh first, I had to do what I could do to help and try and be as open as I could and see what would happen.
0: mm-hmm. That idea of paying paying back, was that paying back to like your fellow human? Or was that paying back to the ashram? Was it paying back to the mother specifically? It was... Paying back isn't really the best word. That's my
1: word, I know. But it was a way of offering something. Mm. You can't pay back because every time you offer something, you receive more than you're giving anyway. It's like a sense
0: of gratitude almost.
1: Yeah, Yeah, a huge sense of gratitude and and wishing to be in some way worthy or in some way, (coughs) excuse me, in some way, um, of value because you, you, I recognize this as something way, way beyond my scope or understanding, something that was essentially big, like really big, bigger than the planet that was, that was happening and I could be a part of it in whatever limited capacity I had. And that's why the physical was the major one that I could offer. And hopefully something would change inside me as well.
0: Hmm. And and did you find that was true?
1: Hmm. Yes. Short answer.
0: <laughs> There's a longer one, I'm sure.
1: <clears throat> yeah. And it's not an easy one. Um, things change within. It's invisible to most people.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: The quality of your life changes. It's just... uh, I I mean, I went back there, what, eight years ago? So when I was about 61 or so, 61 or 62, I retired and went back there. And the work continues, and I feel changed more since then. Mm. Hopefully I'll live a little bit longer and can do some more. I don't know.
0: Do you want to talk about... Um, just briefly what sort of work you did for Machamundir?
1: well I was it's a huge ferro concrete structure in its sort of framework anyway so yeah we did everything from the steel work that had to be done steel binding steel bending fitting um, the centering all the all the wood uh, shutters that had to be fit together and everything had to be measured to within Millimeters. I mean, it's very precise because of the curves in the building, and we didn't have even a laser to work with in those days. Mm-hmm. We had to use really strong, tight wires and things to have reference points that wouldn't move. Uh, and we poured an awful lot of I mean, mixed and poured. I, a lot of times, I worked the mixer and mixed bags and bags and bags. A hundred bags of cement a night, oh. going all night. Mixing two bags at a time. Like a,
0: like a graveyard, like overnight
1: work. Oh, yeah. Start at 3, 4 in the afternoon. The ashram would send a bus of all the students and ashramites who wanted to pitch in and help. Otherwise, we could never have enough people. People from around Orville would cycle in, and we'd have these huge concretings, and we'd have tea and snacks as much as we could to help. Because people get exhausted so long. Right, hard, right? It's hard work. The vibrating and all the other things. The shoveling of the materials into the mixer is all Mm -hmm. manual everything had to be done manually we Mm -hmm. pushed they had these big wheelbarrows that we had to push
0: which were very heavy Mm -hmm. and uh it's okay if the cat gets on the recording then you know they'll just be a special guest rescue cat 27705 everyone
1: (laughs) yeah fine rescue But uh, yeah, no, there's lots of hard physical work. So we were glad for the help that we got on those concretings. And uh, everything that we concreted because of the heat in the tropics was cured. We had to keep wet gunny sacks tied together and strapped over everything. And they had to be wet all night long. So there were midnight shifts continuously to keep them wet. And the curing went on for at least three weeks. Mm, that's a long time. Yeah, for every for every sector, because the concrete was thick in places. More than two feet. Right. And long, what I don't know, twenty feet long. The beams, so. It's pretty big slabs, probably. Yeah, and it went went up about seven feet tall. Oh wow! So it was a big. That's why so many bags of cement for one concreting, and there were major slabs that tied all these things so there was four of these twin towers that went up and then they were linked by big slab that was curved like a dish and that turned into the bottom of the globe that went up so it's a huge globe and there's a chamber in the top half of that globe
0: Mm -hmm. but uh, it's actually quite beautiful having been there myself that one time i was invited to actually go and the construction was still ongoing then i believe there were, yeah, exterior to that, I think. Would have, right, exterior. The inner the inner chamber was done, the mm-hmm. inner sanctum, and that was 20 years ago, because I yeah. would have been 12, 13, and I'm 33 now. So 20 years ago, I got to go and sit in the inner sanctum of Matramandir, which was mm-hmm. otherworldly and how quiet it was. I was very shocked at how well insulated it was. And even though there was construction going on, and we could still hear drilling and construction and stuff, It was very faint, and it was so quiet. I remember even the subtlest shift on my pillow, um, any movement whatsoever, fabric on fabric, you could hear. Even breathing was loud. I
1: think, I shouldn't say this for anyone but myself, but there is a a silence beyond physical silence that's there, Mm. and that gives you... Even if there's physical noise, you can enter into that and it gives you the experience of silence. Even even if there is some physical noise, some sound waves around, there's mm-hmm. a deeper, more powerful silence than that. Maybe not everyone's experienced, but certainly I've experienced that.
0: Yeah, I, I believe that. I'm, for mm-hmm. me personally, I didn't experience that. I just experienced a very quiet room. And I think the other thing that hit me was the sense of energy in the room in the sense that all of the people were there breathing alive and you have that sense as a human of just community and of people but everyone was incredibly still and unmoving because they were meditating Mm. and there's something about being in a room of people that are meditating that does have a special quality to it
1: always yeah group meditation always has a special quality Mm-hmm. Wherever you are, it doesn't have to be in a special place.
0: And then there's the sun tracker as well, and there's the poured sphere of glass that's in the center of the inner sanctum. And the sun tracker um, tracks the sun obviously all day and funnels the sun into this column of light that descends from the top of Matramandir down into this poured um, into glass sphere, sphere. Yeah. and the glass right sphere, the sphere right. And the sphere diffuses a small percentage of that light into the room, and you get this beautiful mm-hmm. ambiance where you can see motes of dust and things in the room, just kind of wafting about. But it's not bright or super well lit. Even it's kind of dim. Yeah. But that, the pillar of light so stark and 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 it's a symbol. It's
1: sculpted of and ascending force. And yeah. that that light goes through that pillar through a hole in the slab that you're sitting on and Mm. right down into, to the earth at the bottom. Mm. So it's a symbol of that force that I talked about, that descending, um, lifting force that's Mm -hmm. trying to uplift the world.
0: Encourage that sort of the aspiring that are willing to sort of pick up that mantle as it were.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a lovely symbol. And I think there's a reality to it, but not everybody will feel it, you know, the way I do necessarily.
0: I'm somewhat agnostic to the whole question myself. I have no issue with people um, having or not having that experience. It's really just uh, mm. what my experience of it was that it was really beautiful.
1: Yeah. And you were 13.
0: That's true. I was 13. <laughs> You'll have to come back. I, I mean, yeah. If, when, if, <laughs> if, if and or when I have the money to, to fly to India and back, I will, I will certainly want to make that a stop. Like that would be a place I would come to see, at least, you know, not not least of which would be because you're there. Or at least mm. in Pondicherry.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, even if I'm not there, mm. come anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, yes,
1: so. I'm not going to be there forever.
0: Yeah, that's true. Well, I doubt my traveling days will extend past the next 20, 20 30 years, but you never know. Well, I may not. I'm
1: definitely not going to extend past the next 20, 30 years.
0: Well, you said Mother made it to 90, and you know, you're turning 70 in the next nine days here. So, so I'll be days. 20
1: to get to 90. That's
0: right. It'll be 20 years to get to 90. And there's... Yeah.
1: I, I mean, I don't know. How How do I know? It could be tomorrow. It could be 90 years or 20 years from now. Yeah. Just well, there's no it. way of knowing. And it doesn't matter. I'm quite happy when it comes. It comes.
0: I've just got to do my best. Mm-hmm. So I think we've done a pretty good job of sort of setting the stage for what Mantra Mandir is and talking about why building it was so important to you. Um, so you, you'd still say you feel a pretty strong connection with Mantra Mandir then?
1: Yeah. And you have to remember when you say it was important to me that in the other podcast, I talked about mm. the unfairness of not getting to be with Jesus or not getting to build the pyramids. Mm-hmm. And both those things were answered for me when I saw the mother. And then when she sent me to build Mandir, mm. and I felt like both those unfairnesses, <laughs> <Injustices>. <laughs> I just didn't want to accept as a little kid. Here I was as an adult and it was happening and real and whether anyone else saw it as that, that was the answer for me to my, so don't say something can never happen, anything can happen sure. one way or another in this life.
0: And it was like a perceived injustice because Jesus was supposed to be the special person that was the son of God. And yeah, well the apostles people, got
1: to see him. And right,
0: all the people alive at that time period would have got to have meet they would have met the son of if God. If you want me to believe this guy, you
1: let right. me see him. Let me right. talk to him.
0: <laughs> so like, I'm supposed to take your word for it, but you know, yeah. all these people who are having their souls judged all the same, got to actually meet him. Like that's pretty convincing.
1: Yeah. So yeah, no, the, as a, and if this wasn't formulated as clearly and as richly as you're trying to mm-hmm. put it now, I was what, seven, eight, six, seven, eight, very sure, young. Sure. But it just seemed unfair to me at the time you know, yeah. from a child's perspective. And, as an adult, it was like, damn, this, this really does happen. Mm-hmm. So I was happy.
0: Meeting someone special that has more awareness than you, you mean? Just like that, can see further than you can see, like that kind of idea?
1: Meeting someone who's the embodiment of the truth and, mm. and this vast consciousness that was beyond my conception altogether. I won't say anything more than that.
0: Yeah, no, I was just trying to kind of pause and sort of take that in and sort of consider it. Yeah, I mean, I could go on talking about things that would just bore the shit out of a lot of people, so I'm
1: not, I'm not going to. That's
0: <laughs> Well, you did you know. mention Rani's story that you wanted to share.
1: Yeah, that's right, I did. Sitaramji was this South Indian gentleman who ran the washing section of the dining room when I first went there? And I say gentleman, meaning a gentleman, like really mm. special person, just the embodiment of kindness and no judgment. I mean, I had long hair when I got there. Never, he never looked at anything. Most Indians didn't like hippies and had a very bad opinion of hippies. But Sita Ramji looked at you and he looked in your eyes and he looked at you and he was like, yeah, you want to work, sure. Come, I'll show you. I'll show you where you can work. And he was always supportive and kind to me. And when Mother sent me out to Matramandir, I would try to get back to the ashram once a week. Not every week, because it's a long 12 and a half miles or so of cycling in and back out, or probably kilometers, I think. 12 and a half kilometers, be it. Yeah, not miles. But that's still a long way to... Cycle. And the roads were just ugly, full of holes and and sand and... Oh, had to push your bike all the time it was really tough but yeah if I went in there he'd say uh yeah come and work with us and you can eat for free don't worry you never have to pay here if you're especially if you come and volunteer and help which I always did so that was really nice for me I just felt it was so welcoming and kind but later on after I'd left and even after you were born I guess hmm yeah, i forget how old you would have been when I went back. I took uh, I took you all back once when you were what, twelve or thirteen? I think so. Hmm. But I
0: think I once
1: went... before that when you were smaller too, because I remember
0: right. pictures of you being pushed in a buggy. There so. were pictures of me being pushed in a buggy. So clearly we went to was it the Taj Mahal? Yeah, we did, amongst other things, yeah, and went went down to the ashram as well. well. I guess I can cross that off my bucket list. It's something I have done. Even though you can't remember? Even though I can't remember it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Well, you, you wouldn't be lying if you said you'd been there. That's true. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was much later when I was going back to visit that I would see Sitaramji. His sight had gotten so bad that he was... Certainly technically blind, but he he had these huge thick glasses. And even with those, he, he couldn't see faces or anything accurately. And his hearing had gone too. And people said, well, there's no need talking to him because he really can't hear you. But whenever I went to see him, before I sat down beside him or anything, he'd say, ah, David. He knew. He knew right away I was there. I, whether he could see me or just felt me, I don't know. And when I spoke to him, I would lean in close to him so that I was only a foot away from his ear, but I wouldn't shout or anything. I just talked normally there. And if he concentrated, he could hear me and he answered some questions for me and asked me questions and always with this kindness that was aimed at helping guide me or lead me towards something better. Beautiful man. And after a few times of visiting him, he wasn't there. He'd gone, he'd passed away. Mm -hmm. And Rani, who had been taking care of, a Bengali woman who had been there when I was first there, Mm -hmm. a few years older than me, perhaps, she said, come up to to Sitaramji's room and I'll tell you about how he passed. And, uh, It's not a story that I would tell everybody usually, but in this case, it's kind of impersonal anyway. So I'll just tell it in a brief way. But she told me that he had been bedridden and had trouble getting up to walk. She had to help him. And uh, she did everything, brought his food, took care of him, made sure his linens were clean and all that sort of thing. And... uh, one day she said to her, oh, tomorrow, you have to help me. I have to go to Sir Bindo's room tomorrow. And she said, but you you, can't. You, can. do you said, Don't worry, I'll be able to do it tomorrow. And she thought, is he getting senile or something? I, mm. Can he really get up and walk? He hasn't been able to. We've tried, and he's having such a hard time just to get to the toilet, let alone go all the way there, even with a car or whatever. And... Uh, next day, he insisted she take some money from his cupboard, almost just, I think, everything that he had left, put it in an envelope, and he took it, and he made a donation at the Surabhinda's room, he meditated there for a half hour or so, and he came back, and he sat on his bed, and he said, Okay, I have to leave my body tomorrow morning. Said, she said, well, How do you know this? He says, don't worry, Mother told me, I know. Just just help me. She says, anything. Just tell me anything. He says, okay. He says, make me comfortable this evening and, and help me. I'll lie down on my back and I'm going to chant a mantra and I want you to chant it too. She said, okay, I can do that. And he says, I will get weaker and weaker with the chanting and then I'll stop. But you keep chanting. And he says, when the sun comes up, you can stop okay. chanting. That's fine. But don't call a doctor. Or don't call anyone, because I won't be breathing. Once the sun comes up, I'll stop breathing. And he says, around 10 o'clock, give them a call. He says, they'll come. uh, But I don't want to be disturbed until that time. Just let my body rest there quietly. And so she just sort of went along with everything, chanted the mantra, and sure enough, everything he said happened exactly as he said it would. And he left his body completely peacefully, calmly, consciously, and at uh, 10 o'clock she called the doctors and they said, oh, he's been dead for a little while. He said that was his instruction.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't know if they were pleased with her or not, but there wasn't much they could do at that point. And I thought after she told me about that, because I knew he was a special person, he was a really fine fellow, I thought, boy, if only I could die like that, with that mm. kind of conscious, deliberate peacefulness no fear no worry no anxieties about it just absolutely peacefully
0: and consciously yeah it's the dream like to be able to choose and to know and to have that intentionality
1: yeah it's not so much to choose but to know the time is coming to accept it fully and go with it and be happy and peaceful in it that's that's awesome if i can do that uh, i'll be happy if i can get that far i don't i don't know that i can i'm not uh I wouldn't put money on it, Let's put it, <laughs> on it but I'm going to do my best, we'll see. Well, But I think I can be peaceful anyway.
0: That's important. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining me and talking about this stuff.
1: You're welcome. I'm glad you gave me the opportunity.
0: So how was it, Intimates? Did you love something you heard, or maybe you're upset by something I said? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash Intimate Interactions, or you can go to patreon.com slash Salmon where you can find our Discord server. All of these communities are available on IntimatePodcast.com, and I genuinely look forward to speaking with you soon. If you liked it, please consider helping us pay for show costs over at Patreon for as little as $1 per month. It's incredibly helpful. It's just a dollar a month. If you can afford it, we would hugely appreciate having your support. And hey, if that doesn't work for you, I completely understand. You can also help out by going to leave a review on iTunes or other favorite social media platform. Social proof like that helps so much with visibility and audience building, it helps other intimacy and relationship nerds find us. And if any of that just sounds like too much work, you can always do something really simple and it still goes a long way. Something like just tapping share and sending an episode that you liked, maybe a favorite, to a friend or partner, or maybe you can send them something you think they might really like. That's probably more considerate. (laughs) Thanks so much for your time and for your help in keeping us making more of intimate interactions. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. The intro music was Driving in the Rain by Timecrawler and this outro music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw.